Amen. And I invite you to take out your Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Let's end the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered together in your name. Lord, now as your word is opened, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way. May it be your truth that is proclaimed to your people. And Lord, I pray that you would cause that to come alive in their hearts. Lord, I pray as well that you would bless the preaching of your word, the proclamation of your word unto the conversion of sinners. Lord, if there are those who do not yet know you, pray that you would draw them into relationship with yourself, uh, that they would see the glory of the gospel, uh, that you would call them effectually and uh, turn them to Christ. Lord, we ask for all these blessings upon this word, and we pray in all these things that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up in John chapter 12, and uh, just to recap, we've seen Jesus now coming to Jerusalem. Uh, We are now in the last week of his earthly ministry, although there is a lot of the gospel of John yet to go. Uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem fully aware of the arrest warrant that has been issued for him, uh, and fully aware of what is going to happen after he is arrested. Uh, We'll spend some time uh, meditating upon that Uh, event on what is going to happen on on the trouble of Jesus' soul and of what it shows for us as well as we follow Christ's footsteps. So we saw last week that there were some Greeks who came seeking Jesus, and that marked something of a transition. Uh, You may remember up until this point in John, we've seen again and again, Jesus' hour had not yet come. He was not arrested for his hour had not yet come. Now, he says to his mother, why involve me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, Now, when Jesus heard that the Greeks came seeking him, he answered in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we saw then Jesus use the illustration of a seed being planted and dying and producing a harvest as an illustration of what he was going to do. So we now pick up with Jesus' response as he is reflecting on what awaits him in the coming days. So let's read together from verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus declares his soul is troubled. As he thinks of his coming hour, the time for him to lay down his life to be like a seed planted, his soul is troubled. He knows what is coming. And truly for any of us, simply the prospect of what was awaiting him physically would be more than enough to trouble the soul. We'll look a little bit at what this was. John 19 verse 1 says that Christ, uh, before he was crucified, 
was given over to be flogged or scourged. Um, To be flogged by the Romans was a torturous beating. Looking at why his soul would have been troubled, consider all of this. Uh, To be flogged, the victim would be stripped of their clothes, would have their hands tied to a pole in front of them, and they would then be flogged with a whip whose leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other metal. Uh, D.A. Carson notes that these beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died. Eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings could leave the victims with their bones and entrails exposed, close quote. So this scourging, this flogging, is a brutal beating, uh, the kind that literally rips the flesh off of your back. In the process for Jesus, he will be mocked, given a crown of thorns, blindfolded, kicked, and spat upon. And all of this is not even yet the method of death. Crucifixion was designed to be slow, painful, and torturous. Crucifixion typically kills through suffocation, right, as the victim is suspended uh, by their arms, in Jesus' case, through the nails in his wrists. Uh, Not only would this send screaming pain through your wrists, uh, but as you hang from your arms in this position, uh, if you're hanging here, each breath you take gives you a little less oxygen. It's it's hard to breathe when hanging by your arms. Uh, And that is where the feet come in. Uh, In order to breathe, Jesus would have had to stand up on the nail driven through his ankles, right? And so this is how crucifixion would kill. You would push up as, as long as you can until the pain or simply physical exhaustion would be too much, and then you would sag back down again to hang from your wrists and slowly, slowly suffocate. And you, you alternate, standing, hanging. And so this method could sometimes literally take days to kill a victim. And so this is why we see actually in Jesus' case, uh, the guards came to break the legs of the victims that were being crucified, uh, but found that Jesus was already dead. Uh, And the reason is, with broken legs, you can't push up on your legs, and so the victim will suffocate faster. Right, so physically, this is what is awaiting Christ. This is what he knows he is facing as he rides into Jerusalem. Right, so just this would be enough for it to not be surprising that he would say in verse 27, my soul is troubled. Right, simply the physical agony would be more than enough to invoke that kind of response from most people. And yet, for Christ, this was not even the worst part of what was coming. It was not just the physical pain that Christ was dreading. Uh, you may have heard Paul Washer has uh, observed that throughout history, many Christians have faced crucifixion, they have faced martyrdom, uh, and the histories of their martyrdoms tell us that many went to their deaths joyfully, right? praising God that they were given the privilege of dying in a similar manner to their Savior. And so Washer asks, Now are you going to tell me that the followers of Jesus Christ bravely and boldly faced the cross without complaint, 
while the captain of their salvation cried out three times, let this cup pass from me? What was in the cup? Jesus, in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays to his Father, as sweat becoming like great drops of blood, praying, let this cup pass from me. There was something more than merely the physical pain. The eternal Son of God was going to become sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when we speak and preach of the holiness of God, right, the moral perfection of God, uh, the fact that God is holy, other, set apart from all impurity, set apart from all sin, that he is pure and set apart. Uh, the God before whom angels bow uh, and the seraphim, the burning ones, cover their faces as they cry out day and night, holy, 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 right? This God who is of purer eyes than to even look upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13. All of these descriptions of the holiness of God, all the attributes of God, apply equally to all the persons of the Godhead, right? So as we consider the holiness of God, this is equally applicable to God the Son as to God the Father. So God the Son is no less holy. He is no less disgusted by sin. The indignation and anger that God has towards sin, Psalm 7, verse 11, is shared by the Son. Sin is equally repulsive to him. So just think of what this means. God, the Son, is preparing to be made sin for us. So even before we look at Christ bearing that penalty, right, the, the wrath that is to come, first just think of what it would be like for the Holy One who knew no sin to become sin, to have our iniquity laid on him, Isaiah 53, verse 6. And being made sin to bear in himself that which is repulsive, to become that which is a stench in the nostrils of God, Christ would then bear in himself the punishment that was due. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. There is much more than merely physical pain. Christ was preparing to become sin, to be made sin, to offer himself in our place and to endure the wrath of God. Now is my soul troubled. He goes on, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. We get a, a glimpse here into the internal struggles of Christ. 
And what he says here parallels his prayer in Gethsemane. Though he is in agony, though he does pray in the garden, Father, remove this cup from me, take this cup, let it pass from me. Not, but not my will, but yours be done. So too here as he considers what he is going to endure, as his soul is troubled, we see the, the flow of thought is the same. Uh, though he might desire to pray to be delivered from this hour, Yet he knows that for this hour, he has come. And for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. And so he says, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. Christ goes voluntarily, eyes wide open, fully aware of what's coming, with his focus fixed on the glory of God. As he considers what he's going to endure, uh, faces this inner turmoil that will become true agony of soul throughout the next week, this is his prayer. Father, glorify your name. Be glorified in and through me. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Now, last week, we looked at how Christ calls all of his followers to follow the pattern of his life, right? For us to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and to follow Jesus, right? To follow that pattern of death and resurrection. Well, here we have perhaps the clearest example of what the attitude ought to be for every Christian, right? So where should your focus be? as you seek to follow the footsteps of Christ? What ought you to be aiming at with your life? This is a central question about the purpose of what we do, the purpose of all things. Jesus said in verse 26, if anyone would serve him, they must follow him. There is perhaps no more important or more central way in which we must follow Christ than this, that we, like Christ, would aim at the glory of God in all things. Right? Christ looks at this path that is laid out before him. He considers what he's going to endure. And his prayer is this, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. That must be the prayer of every Christian. That must be the goal of every Christian, the direction of our life, the target we're aiming at in all that we do to glorify our Father in heaven. Now, every day presents us with new opportunities, right? Every day is a series of opportunities. Situations of various kinds will arise. Things will happen to you. People will interact with you. Different circumstances present themselves. Thoughts pop into your mind. And in each one of these circumstances... You are given choices of how you will respond. All right, so we're looking at this. This is quite literally all-encompassing. All right, so it can be anything from a situation that arises at work to the various thoughts that pop into your mind. Every single one of them is an opportunity. It is a test, a chance to play this game again. And so the Christian, the one who is seeking to imitate Christ, must be seeking in each situation that arises to glorify God, to respond in a way 
that will be pleasing to him. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So to be a follower of Christ, to imitate Christ, to walk in his footsteps, is to be aiming at the glory of God in all things, as Christ did. And perhaps the most challenging aspect of this is to imitate Christ by enduring suffering well. Now, if you guys are anything like me, your sinful nature tends to make excuses for itself when things begin to get difficult. Right? We can see our duty laid out for us in Scripture, right? Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, to glorify God in everything. But as soon as things get difficult, we want to begin to claim exceptions for ourselves. Lord, you don't understand. This is a unique situation. There, there were extenuating circumstances. If you're like me, then in your sinful nature, you tend to act as if the difficulty of the situation should in some way let you off the hook. But the call to be joyful always can't really apply to this. Right? It can't really apply to when I'm sick. The command to give thanks in every circumstance can't really apply here. Do you know how differently my life has gone than what I planned? Do you know how much I am suffering? Can the call to glorify God really apply to suffering? The answer is yes. And it is here, perhaps more than anywhere else, that we have Christ's example commended to us. For we are perhaps never more like Christ than when we bear up well under suffering. 1 Peter 2.19 says, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 4.12-13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Christ knew what awaited him. He knew that walking this path was the will of his Father. And so Jesus set us the example, right, what to do in the face of suffering. Knowing it was his father's will, he embraced it, saying, Father, glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. And so as we look at the sufferings that we face, uh, the circumstances particularly that are outside of our control, right, we ask, is God not sovereign over them? Is he not the author of our story? Does he not preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions in his sovereign providence? May we respond like Christ to all of our suffering. May we bear it up well. 
May we, like Christ, enter into whatever difficulties the sovereign providence of God has appointed for us. And may we answer like the captain of our salvation. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name through me. The sufferings that we face do not let us off the hook regarding our duty to glorify God. To the contrary, they provide us with a special opportunity to glorify God, a special opportunity to be very, very much like Christ. Peter speaks of our fiery trials as a test, right? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. And so the harder the test, the greater the opportunity to glorify God through it. Right? Consider the saint who remains faithful to God, who refuses to curse God as he even faces martyrdom, that saint has made a stronger statement than the one who refuses to curse God because he dropped his ice cream cone. Right? Both are tests. Both are real opportunities where you have a real choice in how you are going to respond. But the harder the test, the greater the opportunity to glorify God in it. For the harder the test, the stronger the statement is that you can make about Christ's all-sufficiency. For when you suffer well, you testify to the world that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You magnify the worth of Christ by declaring to the world through your response that having him and pleasing him is more important than to be free from pain. That is more important than whatever would tempt you into discontentment or anger. So very, very practically, how? How can we glorify God in our suffering? How, we may, how may we glorify God in our trial, whatever it looks like? All right, so applying this now to everything from dropped ice cream cones to martyrdom and everything in between. How do we glorify God in difficulties? All right, we're aiming at the glory of God. How do we do that practically? Number one, we must refuse to grumble or complain against God. For when we grumble and complain, when we murmur and whine about these things that are beyond our control, who are we grumbling against? We are ultimately grumbling against our sovereign God. You cannot glorify God while grumbling against him. We actually see from the scriptures that God counts grumbling as a very serious sin. Now, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs observes that God, in fact, counts murmuring or grumbling as the sin of rebellion. Burroughs writes, a murmuring heart is a rebellious heart, as you find if you compare two scriptures together. And he actually points out that in Numbers 16.41, uh, we have a situation there of the people grumbling against Moses and Aaron, right? They are murmuring, they are complaining, they are unhappy, they are discontented. And then as God is dealing with this sin in the next chapter, he says in Numbers 17, uh, verse 10, put the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels. Right? To be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, 
lest they die. So catch that. God refers to those who had been murmuring, grumbling, complaining. He refers to them as rebels. So Burroughs comments, in Scripture, to be a murmurer and to be a rebel is all the same. Murmuring is as rebellion. For it is a grumbling against God's sovereign providence. It is the seed of criticism against his governance of your life. Right? It is the attitude that is beginning to say, God, you are not doing a good enough job in running my life. You are not doing a good job, perhaps, in running the universe. If I were in charge, right? if, if I were God, I would do a much better job. That is nothing short of blasphemy. It's nothing short of blasphemy. So if you would glorify God even through your hardships, then labor, battle to treat grumbling, treat discontentment and murmuring as the sins which they are. For what are we to do with sin? Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So you notice from this text that it is not just our sinful actions that need to be put to death. It is also sinful attitudes, Sinful thoughts, sinful desires, right? In this list, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. What is your grumbling but coveting better circumstances? So treat these attitudes like the sins that they are. Confess them to God as sin. Agree with God about their sinfulness. And then actively work to put these sins to death. Decide in your mind to take no prisoners when battling sin. You have the ability to interrupt a thought in your mind. You do. You have the ability to answer the lies that your emotions are telling you. Right? Every, every time you have anxiety, every time you have a fear or a worry or a discontentment against God, there is something that your emotions are communicating, right? It is saying something, right? Answer those with the word of God, right? What is the weapon we've been given for spiritual warfare along with the armor of God? It is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, right? So wield that sword against the lies of the enemy, even when those lies come in the form of emotions or feelings, so that's number one. If we would glorify God in our suffering, in our hardship, we must refuse to blaspheme by grumbling and complaining. And so the flip side to that, number two, rather than complaining, if we would see God glorified in response to our hardships, we must strive to have a heart of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Thanksgiving is the polar opposite of grumbling. God commands us to give thanks in all circumstances. Right? Can you picture a heart that is genuinely giving thanks to God for a specific circumstance while also grumbling to God about it? Right? You can't do those things together. You can't hold those things together. Right? Where thanksgiving is, grumbling will not be. Right? These are mutually exclusive. They cannot both hold place simultaneously. Right? You, at the best, you have to flip-flop between them. So thanksgiving is the opposite of grumbling, and we are called by God to give thanks in all circumstances. Right, as long as you are harboring bitterness and malcontent in your heart toward God, you will not be giving thanks to him. We see as well in scripture that thanksgiving is one of the keys to contentment, right, to peace. Philippians 4 verse 6 to 8 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you have peace in the midst of your suffering? Then aim to replace your anxiety with prayer. Replace your grumbling with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Notice it is not the peace that makes perfect sense because God solved your problem. This isn't a promise of improved circumstances. But rather it is the peace of God which surpasses understanding. The peace that perhaps doesn't make sense given your circumstances. And so you may be hearing this, this call to thanksgiving and thinking, man, well, I am in agony. This trial is sapping all of my joy, all of my emotional reserves. What do I have to be thankful for? And this cuts right to the heart of the question of how to glorify God even in suffering. And uh, we'll begin to wrap up with this. Well, firstly, one of the hidden assumptions that is underneath the surface in our grumbling is the feeling that we don't deserve this, right? We deserve better, right? And this is part of why we grumble and get upset. We feel this isn't fair. Your emotions have filed a charge against the judge. God, I don't deserve this. I deserve better, Right? And firstly, we will just point out, as Peter did, that there is such a thing. Uh, there is a category of suffering unjustly. Right Here in this world, people can treat one another unjustly. Uh, wicked governments do flip their job description on its head and begin to punish the righteous and reward evildoers. Right? That happens. And so men of integrity taking a righteous stand frequently will have to pay a price for their faithfulness. Godly wives married to ungodly husbands will often have to pay a price for their faithfulness to face persecution of sorts. And so God does promise that to such unjust suffering there is rich reward. Again from 1 Peter, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if then you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There is reason for thanksgiving, for we are given an opportunity to please God through imitating the example of Christ. For the heart that loves God supremely, simply having the opportunity to follow Christ's example in this way is cause for thanksgiving and is promised reward. So uh, there's our caveat. We do have a category of real unjust suffering in this world. But as we zoom out, as we consider this question on a broader scale, as we take a step back and look at the question of justice and fairness as it relates to our grumbling hearts, I believe it is helpful and will aid our ability to give thanks if we can truly grasp what it is that we deserve from God. I go through suffering, I go through something hard, and my sinful heart becomes indignant saying to God, that's not fair. I don't deserve this. Well, let's examine that claim. What do I deserve? Right, if we're going to enter the courtroom of God and file a charge of injustice against the judge himself, well, let's, let's lay out the evidence, shall we? Right, if I want fairness for my actions, if I want my due, my just deserts, according to what I have earned, what will the verdict be in the courtroom of God? I like to think I'm a pretty good person. Like the Pharisee in Christ's example, I can make a list of sins I have not done. I can make a list of virtues I pursue. I could make a list of those I am not like. Right? I could find my share of tax collectors that I believe I am morally superior to. Has this earned me anything before God? Well, that raises the question, what is the standard? Right? Where are we measuring goodness? What are we using to measure goodness? Is it enough for our good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds? Is it really enough to have a list of people that are worse than you, in your opinion. What has God said is the criteria for judgment. By what standard? Well, the answer, God's holy law. Right, that is the standard. It is against God's moral law that we will be judged. His nature, his character, his standard of right and wrong, for he himself is the standard for goodness. And here's where I get into trouble. This turns, turns out to be very bad news for anybody who would come before God and demand justice. For what we will find when measured up against God's holy law is that there is not one of us who has kept it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? God's standard is perfection. If I want to be judged, if I want to demand justice for my deeds done in the body, the result will not be rewards. The only result would be damnation. 
Right? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point of it has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So when you stand in the courtroom of God, when the judge of the earth comes to weigh your deeds in the balance, this is the question. Are you righteous? That is, are you a keeper of the law? Or are you a sinner, a transgressor of the law, a law breaker? You see, those are the categories. God does not grade on a curve. Someone could have a list a mile long of the good things they have done, and if they have broken even one commandment, they are still in the category of law breaker, right? The category of sinner rather than law keeper. And as we examine God's holy standard, when we look to what he has said, rather than our own perceptions of what makes a good person, we will find that we have all broken much more than only one commandment. And so we find that if we were to demand justice, fairness, based on our own deeds, we would all be condemned. Fairness, justice, you simply getting what you have earned through your deeds would mean hell. That is what we deserve. That is what we have earned for our law-breaking That is what justice requires of sinners who have scorned their maker. Are you so sure that you want to demand justice from God? Now, if you are hearing the sound of my voice right now, then the fact is that God is presently treating you better than you deserve for your sins. Right? Every person, Christian or non-Christian, who is still alive at this moment is experiencing what we call God's common grace, right? For anything at all other than the fires of hell at this moment is a result of God's patience. Anything other than the full and unrestrained wrath of the living God is a form of grace. It is not justice. It is not your wages. It is not what you have earned. It is grace. This is the common grace God extends to all people. So, with all of that in mind, let's return to this question. What do you have to be thankful for? How about sunshine and roses? Rain and apples? The ability to think? The next breath you will take? The soft bed you have to sleep on? The next meal? you'll enjoy, people who love you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, that neighbor who has always been kind to you, that camping trip you went on as a kid, good books, good music, root beer floats, the list goes on. When you begin to get serious about the question of justice, and compare what you truly deserve for your sins compared to what you are presently receiving from God. Gratitude gets easier. There's a warning in this as well. For if you don't know Christ, 
then you should know that these good things in your life, right, this common grace you're receiving, is as close as you will ever get to heaven. And your sufferings, your pains, your sorrows, they are as nothing compared to the suffering that awaits you in hell. But here's the good news. And it is also the deepest possible reason for gratitude for those who know it and have received it. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to purchase the pardon of all who would ever come to him in repentance and faith. As he said, John 12, 27, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Christ knew what awaited him, and it was for this purpose he came. He was sent into the world so that the world might live through him. He came and suffered and died and rose again so that sinners like you could be forgiven. Justice would not let sin go unpunished. We've been speaking about what would happen to us if God simply granted us what we deserved. And as we've seen, the fact is we do not want justice from God. We want grace. It is, the, it is in the grace of God that he sent a substitute to bear our sin, to take our place, to bear our punishment in himself. It is through the grace of God that he sent his son to provide our righteousness and to earn covenant blessings for us that we could not earn for ourselves. It is through grace that God offers forgiveness and the blessing of eternal life to absolutely anyone who will turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. And so if you do know Christ, if you have been redeemed by his blood, then you know that there awaits you a blessing and inheritance far beyond anything that you could ever ask or think. And there is nothing in hell or on earth that can separate you from the love of God in Christ our Lord. And for the redeemed heart, we know that having Christ being found in him, clothed in his righteousness, reconciled to God, this is all a treasure that is worth losing everything to gain. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. If you have a treasure that is worth more than everything else that the world has to offer, then no matter what you lose in this life, no matter what blessings God takes away from you or never gives you in the first place, there is always reason for gratitude. And in this, the glory of God is magnified. For when someone loses everything, but remains joyful in God, remains faithful to God. They are showing the world that he is their supreme treasure. They are communicating to the world that he is supremely valuable, that he is sufficient, that having him and pleasing him is worth more than anything else. That is how you glorify God in your suffering. May we faithfully follow the example of Christ and pray now and always, Father, glorify your name.
Amen.